Uh, some years back, I had a really strange experience, and um, there, was a, there was a guy who started kind of uh, following me around and would at times make accusations about me. He would say things like, you know, I, I think that you're a fraud. Um, I, I think you're met ruining my life. Um, and, and it was hard because I, I often struggled to even know, like, what experiences could have resulted in that and him thinking those things. And um, I know that his life was hard, that things were kind of falling apart. And so uh, an elder and I, we got together with him and, and just sat down and said, you know, hey, what is it that, that Josh has done? What is it that's going on that's making you, you feel this way? And he said, well, for one, I, I don't like his preaching. And, you know, at that moment, my heart just kind of dropped because I was thinking, you know, the one, the one thing that I want to do as a pastor is, is help people see God. Uh, I want to help them do that. And um, so I started thinking about all the ways, all of my deficiencies, and couldn't imagine what he was going to say next. And uh, so the elder who was with me just said, well, well, what in particular are you thinking about? And he said, well, you're always preaching about Jesus coming back. What in the world does that do to help me? How is that going to help my job or my marriage? Like, what, what does that have to do with, with real life? And it was in that moment that I was a little bit stunned, and the elder who was with me said, well, you need to know that we're never going to stop preaching about the return of Jesus Christ. The return of Jesus Christ is basic to the gospel that we preach here. It's something that we are not ashamed of. It is the blessed hope of, of Christians. Now, of course, when we got to the end of that, he walked out, and from there, his life got worse and worse. Uh, he lost his job. He left his wife. Things got more and more difficult. I'm wondering this morning, though, if maybe you are struggling to see the significance of the return of Jesus Christ in your life. The, the way that that reality that Jesus has ushered in for us actually ought to bring meaning and hope and transformation to the way that you live. We're back in our Remember This series, True Knowledge in, in the Life of uh, Peter, where he writes in 2 Peter 1.16-18, arguing that the return of Christ does matter. He says, I want this generation and future generations to know that the return of Christ matters every day. It is the blessed hope of the last day that is infused in every day, bringing to it new mercies and fresh joys. And I, I don't want you to lose sight of that. I don't want you to lose sight of the fact that there's a day that's coming where everyone will give an account to Christ. And if you really understand that, it's going to change everything. Well, if you're just joining us, I want to catch you up to speed as far as where we've been in Peter's letter so far. Uh, Peter writes this letter perhaps to the same church that he addressed First Peter to. Uh, a mostly Gentile Christian audience in the Roman pr provinces of Asia Minor. That's modern-day Turkey. And Peter senses that his death is drawing near. He wants to remind these and future generations of Christians of what the true knowledge of the gospel is. He doesn't want them to be satisfied with the fake gospels that will not bring them all the way home. In particular, he's worried about false teachers who either are there or will be coming who were teaching at least a couple of things. One is that Jesus isn't coming back, and B, that therefore it doesn't matter how you live. Now in verses 16 to 18, P 
Peter moves from the purpose of his letter as a reminder of the gospel to an intriguing argument. argument. And it connects two interesting events. The transfiguration of Jesus to the surety of his second coming. Two amazing events in the history of the people of God. Now, our big idea this morning, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. It's this, that Peter's eyewitness account of the transfiguration verifies the second coming of Jesus. That's what Peter's arguing here. The, the, the transfiguration verifies the return of Christ. As we begin, let me just go ahead and pray for us, and we'll get started. Let me pray. Father, this morning as we come before you, we ask again for your help that we might see you more clearly. Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would be at work amongst us. Father, for those who do not have eyes to see, give them eyes to see, spiritual eyes to see and behold the glories of your Christ for the first time. And Lord, for those of us who do know your Son, Jesus, we pray that you would help us to grow in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do this for the glory of your name we do pray. Amen. Well, first, notice that he says false teachers claim the second coming is fiction. There are false teachers. They are claiming the second coming is fiction. Now, if you'll notice in the text, it begins in verse 16 with that word for. And I believe that that for is is actually indicating to us that he is connecting our verse 16 with what precedes it. He's been telling us, going in great detail, about how Christians look more and more like the divine nature of Jesus, His moral excellency, as they are growing in Christ and awaiting His return. And on that day, we are told in 1 John 3.2, when Jesus shows up, we are told that when Christ appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Apparently, the, the Scriptures teach that we become like that which we watch, that which we look at. You might you be careful about the, the TV programs we're watching, what we're looking at on the Internet? Those things shape us, but one day we will be shaped by the visible manifestation of the very presence of Jesus Himself. But until then, until then, we are growing day by day more holy as Christ is holy. Yet here, Peter turns his focus towards a specific aspect of the Gospel. Specifically, the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, some false teachers have and or will teach the second coming is a creative fiction. It's something that's been concocted by the apostles in their little lab. But catch this, this statement in verse 16, where he is going to tell us, not this, but that, in verse 16. This is what he says, 2 Peter 1, 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. I take the the we here in verse 16 to speak of the apostles, those messengers sent by Christ with Christ's words, including words about Jesus' return. Now, the resurrected and ascended Jesus Christ, we are told in Matthew 28 that he possessed all authority. He possesses all authority in heaven and on earth. Jesus is a transcendent authority. There's no authority higher than Jesus Christ. And the resurrected and ascended Jesus sends his messengers, his mailmen, with his words 
to his people. Now, you know that tampering with U.S. mail, it's actually like a federal offense, right? It's a bad thing. You shouldn't do it. But tampering with God's mail, it comes with eternal ramifications. See, apostles delivered God's mail, and it's what Jude calls the faith once for all delivered to the saints. That's what's been given to us. But take note, this first line introduces us to the false claims of the false teachers who seem to be saying the apostles follow cleverly devised myths. Cleverly devised. It's a phrase that really carries a pejorative sense. It's a negative sense. It's a kind of idea that these apostles are self-serving, artful, crafty guys. They're not, they're not dabbling in truth. They're actually fiction writers. And myth only amplifies this. Uh, in Greek mythology, you'll remember that uh, their mythology centered on myths about gods with no basis in reality. They were fantasy. Others use myths for fables or fiction writing. But catch this. Paul uses this word to attack others, describing false teachers as those who are writing theological fiction. He does this in 1 Timothy 1, 4 and elsewhere. But here there is an attack that's coming back against Peter and the teaching of the apostles. And Peter is actually defending the faith. And he's defending it against those people who are levying attacks that the apostolic message was concocted fiction. Do you see it? They have been attacked as those who are writing myth, and that's what Peter wants to write against. In fact, Josephus used the same phrase for following myths to contrast Moses, who did not invent fictional stories, with those other legislators who followed fables. But did you catch Peter zeroes in here on a very specific aspect of the gospel? That second coming, the return of Christ. And I think this is what Peter means when he says, we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, before the transfiguration account in Mark, we find that he spoke of those who would see the kingdom coming in power before they tasted death. But here, this powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, I take that to speak of the second coming. Uh, when he says, we made known to you this event, it's describing the apostles' peach, uh, preaching. They preached the gospel, a gospel that included the fact that Jesus was coming back. Of course, the Bible speaks of two comings or advents of Jesus Christ. Uh, we know we celebrate one of those at Christmas, the incarnation, when Jesus took on flesh, the eternal Son of God. And you might be tempted here to think that Peter has that event in mind, especially if you connect it to the next phrase, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. But I take it to speak of the second imminent bodily coming of Jesus Christ to judge the living and the dead for two reasons. And this is important for the nature of how we're understanding this letter. First, the word for coming here in Greek, it's parousia, and it's a word that's used elsewhere in the New Testament with reference to Christ, 17 times by my count, and it is exclusively used to speak of the second coming of Jesus. Now, this would be the only time it would be used of the first advent, if that's what this meant. But there's a second reason. Peter actually used the same word twice again in his letter in 3.4 and 3.12, and there he is clearly speaking of the second coming of Christ. In fact, if you scale down, look to 
3, 4, you'll notice that Peter highlights an argument that false teachers will or have given for the denying the second coming. He says, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. He said he was coming back. He hasn't coming back. He's not coming back. Now, the false teachers claim that these apostles teaching about the second coming of Jesus to judge the living and the dead was a crafty fiction that they needed to leave it behind. They claimed if you want to have a good life, you need to drop the second coming. In fact, the second coming, I'm sure they were teaching something along the lines of, you know, this teaching is actually a straitjacket that is preventing you from having a lot of fun today. I'm wondering, do you know why people deny the second coming of Jesus? I mean, we can always say, yep, yeah, because they're not born again and they need spiritual eyes to see it. But I believe believers and unbelievers alike can find doubts that creep in about the nature of the return of Jesus for a number of reasons. Maybe some doubt that Jesus is coming back because they are just tired of waiting. I mean, we, we don't like to wait, do we? And the longer that you wait and the worse things get, the more that you begin to ask, is Jesus actually coming back? I mean, it seems like he's late. Or maybe you're thinking to yourself, I I've faced incredible injustice. And I'm told that Jesus is the just judge who's coming back, and if he was really just, he'd already be back. And both of those, we wonder if we really trust the sovereign timing and authority of Jesus Christ and his infinite wisdom. Some think Jesus is actually just all love, or, or, or mostly love and mercy. And so we, we wonder, maybe Jesus is coming back, but when he comes back, I mean, I, I think he grades on a curve. I've been basically a good person. He's a loving God, and so I don't see any way that that day really should shape my every day. Or maybe you think of Jesus, not only in his nature, but you think of your own nature. And you think, hey, I'm, I'm pretty good. I mean, you should see the people in the world, like watch the news. I am pretty good if you judge me according to the guys you see on the news. And so on that last day, I think Jesus is going to be grading on a curve for me, and I, I should be better than most. And maybe it could be this morning that you're like so many who are just too busy to consider their souls. I mean, there's some of you who will check your stocks 50 times a day and yet never take stock of your own soul. Now, others flatly reject anything that smacks of the miraculous, and they call it fiction. Anybody that, that says that there is a miracle or something significant that is out of the realm of anything that you've experienced before, you think it cannot have happened, because I'm the arbiter of truth, and I'm a reasonable, rational creature, and you need to prove it to me if I'm going to believe it. In fact, in the 19th century, a German scholar, Rudolf Bultmann, tried to save young scholars who were being intimidated by scholasticism and the discovery of all kinds of scientific and archaeological things like dinosaur bones, and they were like, we don't see dinosaur bones in the Bible, so maybe the Bible's not true. And so he said, you know what we're going to do? I know that the Bible's full of all kinds of miracles like axe heads floating, and uh, people who are being raised from the dead. And we know that these things don't happen in our everyday experiences. So what we'll do is we'll kind of redefine what the Bible is. It's a book of myths. A book of myths that are really just 
spiritual stories. And what you need to do, you need to learn to read your Bible not to understand the historical truth of who Jesus is and how God has acted in history to save his people, but you need to start reading it as kind of a a hidden story beneath a myth so that you can dig beneath those miracles to understand who is the Jesus of history because clearly these words don't give us a direct view into that. And they taught many this, and a century later they had what they called a Jesus seminar. I think it should have been called the anti-Jesus seminar. Because they went through the Bible looking at 500 sayings of Jesus to cast their marbles or beads or these little pegs that were different colors. Some were black and some gray and some pink and some red. And they would say, okay, here's what we're going to do. We've got 100 scholars. I want you to just throw in your bead and tell me, do you think Jesus said this one? At the end of the study, you know how many words of Jesus or what percentage of the sayings they believed Jesus actually said? Maybe 20%. Now, these are not scholars that I recommend. And at the end of it, they agreed with some dissensions that Jesus did not promise a second coming. Now, maybe you wonder if the second coming is really that big of a deal. Well, don't miss this. If you refuse to believe in the second coming of Jesus Christ because of its miraculous tone, you will struggle to believe much of the Bible. The Bible is a book about a God that doesn't stay silent, a God that doesn't just let the world keep running like some kind of deistic demigod. He is the God of the Bible, a God who intervenes and acts in history. And he does so because of the great love with which he loves his people. And he does it because he wants to give hope to a people who were hopeless. God is not sitting back, biding his time, ignoring what's happening. God is moving history towards a point. And Peter says, this second coming is basic to God's good news. The apostles, they weren't some quasi-spiritual influencers who were following a Jesus they did not know on Instagram. These are eyewitnesses to Jesus Christ. Now, Trinity Bible Church, I just think it's helpful to remind us of our statement of faith periodically. We are a church that believes in the second coming. In fact, here's our statement on Jesus. We believe Jesus ascended to heaven, remaining both fully God and fully man, where he now sits at the right hand of God, interceding for believers, even now, interceding for you from which he will return bodily to judge the living and the dead. Now, did you catch what Peter did not do against these claims that there was no second coming? He didn't say, you know, I get it, second coming, pretty lofty, difficult teaching. So I'll tell you what, it's okay if you don't accept the second coming. You be you. In fact, why don't you write your own gospel and call it Jesus, and we'll, we'll just go with that. No. He also doesn't say the fiction of the return of Christ. It, it's okay if, if it's just a myth. Just buy into it because of the spiritual reality behind it and try to find the man behind the myth. No, he says, second, the fact of the transfiguration proves the second coming of Jesus. Did you catch that? The, the fact of the, second, uh, of the tr- transfiguration proves the second coming of Jesus. 
Now, Peter says the transfiguration proves the fact that Jesus is coming back. Now, I know this might look what philosophers call obscurum per obscurius, a Latin phrase that that actually means proving the already unclear with something even more unclear, right? Because you're going, wait a minute. I mean, if things were hard with the second coming, now you're telling me that the transfiguration is supposed to prove that? But Peter argues from the fact of one past historical event to the truth of a future historical event. That's what Peter's doing in his mind. See, Christianity, it uniquely positions itself as a religion anchored in history. We are not believing in some kind of fiction. We constantly are looking as we teach the Bible to show how what we believe is actually grounded in real events in time and space. In fact, in Jesus, in the eyewitnesses, a book written by Richard Bauckham, he says that the authors of the Gospels, as you read through them, they are utilizing specific names, and sometimes the lists are different depending on which Gospel writer is writing. Some have more names, some less, and the reason is is because they had in mind the context who had originally received that Gospel, and they wanted those who would receive and hear the gospel of Matthew or Mark or Luke, to have those who would receive it and read it have the opportunity to go back to those names listed whom they would have been able to find and ask them, are these things true? Now you go through and you count up all these names that are in the gospel accounts. Uh, Someone has said before that they're like 500 names if you got them accurately. And that's the 500 names we have mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15. I don't know about all that. But what I would say is, there are a lot of names, a lot of eyewitnesses to the events that happened. It's amazing the kind of ways that the gospel writers go about proving that the events of the gospel happened in history. And here, Peter is highlighting an event that Matthew 17, Mark 9, and Luke 9 all record the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. It's an event where we find that Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up a mountain. And it's there that he reveals the most visually spectacular miracle in the ministry of Jesus. One many of us forget about. The transfiguration. It's for sure the brightest, right? And each gospel slightly differs in the word choice of this event. I think this is due to the theological emphasis of each author bringing in a specific sort of point that they're trying to highlight. But notice in 16b, Peter, James, and John, Peter says they saw Jesus' divine nature with their eyes. Peter does not just skip over this. He hits it head on. We saw His divine nature with our very eyeballs. Verse 16b, notice, did you see what he says at the end of that verse? But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, now majesty can mean different things. It doesn't always mean deity, but as we will see in context, here it is speaking of the deity of Jesus Christ. Now, here's what's fascinating. I, I I might be reading this wrong, but it almost seems as though Peter here uses the transfiguration as a non-disputed fact to those he's writing to. 
to argue for the disputed fact of the second coming. See, Peter's account is most like Matthew's, though I think different. We'll see that in a minute. But I think Matthew can help catch us up to speed with what's going on at the transfiguration. Now, his account shows some progress in Matthew 17. He shows some progress in his narrative by connecting the baptism of Jesus with his transfiguration. Now, the way that you see this is probably a way that some of you, as you read this text, immediately thought, oh, is he talking about the baptism? Because that's where he said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. God the Father says that at the baptism. Is that what he's talking about? But, but no, he actually says it at both events. See, Jesus' baptism occurs at the first of his ministry in Matthew 3. His transfiguration after the good confession of Peter concerning the identity of his son in Matthew 16. So right before we see the transfiguration, we see Peter make the good confession. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And that's when Jesus calls him a rock upon whom he will build his unassailable church. That was a good day for Peter, right? Like, man, I'm the rock. Did you catch that, James and John? And then Jesus immediately tells the disciples about how he must die and be raised again from the dead. And then in 16, 23 to 34, just a few verses after Peter being called the rock, we are told Peter took Jesus aside. It's not a good thing to take Jesus aside. And he rebuked him. I mean, the gall. He rebuked the Lord. And he said, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. I will not let you die. To which Jesus responded, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. Man, that's a turn, isn't it? Four verses, you go from the rock to Satan. That's what I call rock bottom. Now, just a few verses later, Jesus teaches the disciples in verses 27 to 28, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and he will repay each person according to what he has done. Did you catch that? Matthew 16, before the transfiguration, Jesus is coming back and everyone will give an account. That's a day that we're still waiting for. The Son of Man, that character from Daniel 7, is the one who you'll remember in Daniel 7, comes riding in on clouds of glory. He is a God-man. Gods, they're the ones that, that ride around in clouds. That's not humans. You'll never see humans riding around in clouds. You heard it here first. It won't happen. It's what God does. But one day, this figure, who is the Son of Man, will come in on clouds, and he will judge the living and the dead. That's Matthew 16. Matthew 17. Maybe just a week, six days after Jesus called Peter a rock, and then Satan. He invites him along with James and John up on the mountain to behold his majesty. That's where Jesus appeared with Moses and Elijah, who at least seemed to represent the law and the prophets. There's a lot more going on here. Can you imagine Peter looking on Elijah and Moses? I mean, if we're thinking about the second coming and life after death, he's like, wow, 
Elijah and Moses are still alive. I mean, we read about it, but I think I'm going to read the Old Testament new now. And Moses anticipated also a greater figure. In Deuteronomy 18, we were told there's a greater prophet than Moses who would come. And in Malachi, we are told that not only will one greater than Moses come, one greater than Elijah's coming. In fact, Malachi, that's the prophet, not our pastor, he said that Elijah would come before the last day. But Jesus peeled back the veil of his humanity in this moment to reveal his deity, appearing in dazzling light, as bright as the sun, blinding light. And Peter seemed to want to build three tents to keep them there. He didn't want Jesus going anywhere. But God the Father interrupts Peter's grand plan, another great day for Peter, and says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And I'll take it that Matthew 3 recognizes Jesus as the son of God in the sense of a king in the line of David. He is the, the Messiah, the Christ that we've been waiting for. But I take this statement in Matthew 17 at the transfiguration to show us some kind of progression that Jesus is the Son of God who is truly God. There's none like Him. He's not just an earthly king. He is the God who rides on clouds. In Matthew 28, we find that He is the one to whom God has given all authority in heaven and on earth. It took two or three witnesses to establish the truth of anything in a courtroom, in the, the courtroom setting of Israel. But notice that here, uh, he has two or three witnesses in Peter, uh, James, and John. And he also had heavenly witnesses in Moses and Elijah. But there is a greater witness that we find here. Did you see it? It is God the Father himself in verses 17 to 18. It says, but the Father gives honor and glory to the Son of God. The Father, he, he's giving honor and glory to Him. Now catch this. I think the background of Matthew is helpful because Peter speaks as though his audience was familiar with the transfiguration. He's not giving a lot of details because he's assuming, here's the story you have heard a lot. You might not have heard it a lot, but they had heard it a lot. And I take that in Peter's account in verses 17 to 18 of 2 Peter, he is actually speaking from a first-hand account, which he aims with sniper-like precision at teachers claiming that Jesus isn't coming back. He says, I want you to understand how these are connected. Now here's what he says in verses 17 to 18. Look there again. Here's what he says. He says, when, for when he received honor and glory, speaking of Jesus, from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majesty or the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard the very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Now some take honor and glory here to speak of one thing, kind of glorious honor or something. But I think that glorious is speaking about one element, it's the visible change of Jesus, his face and clothing becoming as bright as the sun, and honor is describing God the Father's voice from heaven speaking to his nature. 
Now, notice the voice comes from the majestic glory. It doesn't just say God the Father, but the majestic glory. And even though the different word is used for majesty here than what was used for Jesus in verse 16, I believe Peter is inviting us to see that God's Son shares in his Father's divine majesty and glory, which speaks of God's presence. He, in a sense, has a closer relationship to God than anyone else ever has. He doesn't simply reflect the glory of God. He emanates with the glory of God. See, Jesus mediates God's glory in such a way that if you have seen the Son, you have looked upon the Father. Human flesh veiled His divine nature until the transfiguration. And the words, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, is, is drawing from a couple of Old Testament texts. So catch this, God speaks and God quotes the Bible. Good thing just to take note of. Now, here's what he says. One, I believe he's pointing to Psalm 2, an enthronement psalm for a coming king from the line of David. And in Psalm 2, 6 to 8, God says this, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son today, I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. They're yours. See, Jesus is God's spirit-anointed king, his Christ, his Messiah. And he has come to rule the nations. I take it here that Peter's mention of the holy mountain in 2 Peter, because we don't see this mountain referred to as a holy mountain anywhere else. We don't exactly know what mountain it was that this happened on. But I take it that he is thinking back on what the psalmist says. I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Peter says, I was there to see the anointing of this king. But the phrase, with whom I am well pleased, comes from another place, Isaiah 42.1. A very different image. You know, one is of regal power. This one is one of a suffering servant. And, and here we find in Isaiah 42.1 where the king would also be a suffering servant who would have to lay down his life for God's people so that he might, as the end of Isaiah suggests, come back as a conqueror ushering in a new heavens and a new earth where he would judge the nations with equity. And Jesus accomplished this at the cross. It's there that he laid down his life as a suffering servant for sinners to absorb the just wrath of God for all of humanity who would put their faith in Christ and turn from living for this world that is perishing to living for King Jesus who is eternal. Now without Jesus, no person can see God and live. See, Peter here is saying that he witnessed a very critical moment in redemptive history where the Son of God revealed that He was truly God. If you're new to Christianity, if you're a non-Christian, uh, let me just encourage you that we believe some things that sound amazing because they are. And one of those things is we believe that Jesus was not just a prophet. He wasn't a philosopher, a guru, a life coach. He was the God-man, uniquely. No one else like him. And here we find that Jesus says that I am the glory of God incarnate. And that means that there is no greater authority than Jesus. And that's how the transfiguration verifies the second coming of Jesus. 
It is because it is there that we see the divinity of Jesus, who is the judge before whom all of humanity must give an account. We can't just keep living how we want and not expect that one day this divine king will not bring justice. Thus, Peter has it on the best authority that Jesus is coming back. Jesus said so in Matthew 16, before he revealed his divinity. And then his divinity said, he's really coming back. And after Jesus was raised from the dead and ascended to heaven in Acts 3, 19 to 21, Peter starts teaching, remembering these things, and he says, Jesus must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. So Jesus says, it's not just me that said he's coming back. It's not just me. It's not Peter says, it's not just Jesus. It's the prophets who are telling us he would have to come back. He thought the second coming was very important. Later, in Acts 10.42, he's speaking to Cornelius and his family. And he says, Jesus was the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. How many of you have shared Christ with someone who is far from God? And part of your gospel presentation was, by the way, he is the judge of the living and the dead, and you'll have to give an account. That was basic to Peter's gospel. Now, we're going to look at how Peter develops this argument over the coming weeks. But for now, I think we see Alison Trite's article, one that I read recently on the transformation of Jesus Christ. I think we find that, that what this article says about the transfiguration is, is very much true. In this event, the transfiguration, we are shown the gospel and microcosm. There is a kind of brilliant clarity about the nature of who God is, who we are, and what the future holds in the transfiguration. Now, don't miss the beauty of this moment for both you and me as we read this account in Peter's letter. Think about this. Both Moses and Elijah, great prophets of God, they saw the hind parts of God on a mountain. That's what made them famous in part. They actually got as close as anyone to seeing God. In fact, we're told in Exodus 33, 11, that Moses had a unique relationship with God such that he talked face to face to God just as a man speaks to his friend. But just in case you might get confused on what he meant by that, just a few verses later in 33.20, he clarifies, God says, you cannot see my face for no man can see my face and live. No one sees him with this kind of intimacy. Why? Because we are sinners. We are sinners before a holy and righteous God. In fact, here's the, the great struggle of humanity, I believe. We all long to see God. Every one of us, we, we long deeply to see the face of God and to truly believe He is all that He has said He is. And yet, what we don't often remember is that if we got our greatest dream and it were to become true and we were to see some kind of miraculous vision of God Himself face to face, we would die. We could not live and see God left to ourselves. Not even Moses and Elijah could look at him face to face, the great prophets, and live. Then enter Peter. The bumbling Peter. <laughs> I love this guy. A guy I can relate to. A guy who just tried to rebuke Jesus six days ago, if my timeline's right. 
before the transfiguration. He just hit rock bottom, and here's a new day and a new mountaintop experience that trumps every youth camp that anybody's ever been to, every Easter celebration that you'll never forget. It's like all of those combined, his experience with Jesus. He's called up out of his darkest moment to behold the majesty of his divine king. And he isn't even able to comprehend all that it means. And we likely don't comprehend all that these texts mean for us either. But rock bottom Peter looks upon Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God, such that to look upon the Son is to see the Father. And catch this, he lives to tell about it. Do you see that? What glory! I mean, this is a hope for those of us who feel like we are rock bottomed out and it'll happen again. There's something special and unique that happens in the person of Christ and his ability to bring us to God. If you're a non-Christian, know that Jesus, he is indeed coming back to judge the living and the dead. And it's not safe for you to see God from the God-man, apart from the God-man who came to mediate relationship between you and God. See, the return of Christ, it is going to be a completely different experience for two groups of people. For those who do not trust in Christ as the God-man who saves them from their sins, it will be the most tragic, devastating day ever. And it's just the beginning of the rest of eternity. But for those of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, He is the one who draws us out of the darkness kicking and screaming, into the light so that we might look upon God face to face and live forever. What a day! If you haven't put your faith in that Christ, do it today. Don't leave without talking to me, another Christian. Let's get you baptized soon. But also, aren't you grateful for Peter's testimony? I mean, it's one of second chances and restoration again and again. I mean, we say rock bottom and mountaintop, but keep following the story. I mean, this is a guy, he, he's, the, he's, he's the rock, and then he hits rock bottom, right? He's just like, you're the rock, and then like, oh man, like you're Satan. He has a mountaintop experience that he denies Jesus three times. He runs to the empty tomb, and John even feels it necessary to remind us that he beat him to the tomb. And then he sees a resurrected Christ and jumps out of a boat and swims to meet him because apparently the motor on the boat wasn't fast enough. And later in Galatians, Paul has to correct him for not correcting the Judaizers. And yet an old Peter here says, I saw his majesty and I lived to tell about it. And I'm about to leave my tent or body. And in verse 15, just before this, he says, I'm about to experience death. And he uses a word for exodus there. And he says, I, I'm about to go and visit the promised land. I'm going to see Jesus face to face, and I want to make sure you get there too. You're elect exiles. I want you to make it all the way home. Now, Trinity Bible Church, don't you want to be a church that the Apostle Peter could come to? That we're not too holy for Peter, whose life demonstrates a clunky, progressive sanctification like no one else I see in the Bible. But catch this. I believe that we can do this. I believe that as long as we are committed to taking God's side against sin, both individually and corporately, 
and believe in a God who forgives and transforms, that we can be that church, that we can be a church that sees people's lives transformed, people who are in bad places coming to a better place, a place where they no longer are ashamed of their lives, but believe their lives, even the darkness of their lives in the past, can be used as a testimony to the present power of the divine God-man. I want to be that place. You know, I recently was meeting with a group of guys, and uh, we were having, we meet once a month, and we're, we're talking through leadership things, and um, one of the things that we talked about was this idea of how do you restore a, a leader, especially someone who is in vocational ministry? We've seen a lot of people fall. What is the hope of someone like that? And one person asked, I mean, do you believe that a pastor who falls to adultery can be restored to ministry? And I said, absolutely. And there was like kind of a, a sort of shock, kind of, what did he say? And I said, well, let's make sure we understand what we mean by ministry. Every saint is called to a ministry. Pastors are called to equip saints for the works of ministry. There is not a Christian that's not called to be a minister of the gospel in some way, in some gifting, in some capacity. If they are spiritually alive, they have been called to build up the church. So absolutely that can be restored to ministry. It might not be vocational ministry. It might be that your ministry is changed because of some fallenness in your life. But it doesn't mean that God's done with you and that God might not even make your latter days more fruitful than your previous days. We believe that God saves and transforms. Here's the good news. God uses broken vessels like you and me to bring Him glory. Now catch this. The transfiguration, it gives us a peek into the future that awaits you and me who are in Christ. Do you see it? This is like, sort of like one of those Sixth Sense type movies where you get to the end and you see it and you're like, oh, I need to go back and watch the film to see what this thing was really about. Well, here we get sort of a preview of what the end is like. When Jesus comes back, there is glory that awaits us. In fact, uh, this one author, Howard Clark Key, says this, the transformation scene is not a theophany to, nor an epiphany of Jesus, but a proleptic vision of the exaltation of Jesus as the kingly Son of Man granted to the disciples as eschatological witnesses. Now, I think he's showing that he's deity too. But I think he gets it right when he says that it is pointing forward towards the eschatological future, the last day future that we await. We will become like that which we, we, will become like that which we watch. And one day, when we come face to face with Jesus, we will not need second chances anymore because we will be transformed and Jesus will be our all in all. Uh, Augustine picks up this saying in 1 Corinthians 15, 28 in the city of God. And he says this, he says, this is also the right way to understand what the Apostle Paul means when he says that God shall be all in all in 1 Corinthians 15, 28. He will be the end of our desires. He will be seen without end, loved without satiation, and praised without weariness. And his, this gift, this feeling, this activity, like eternal life itself, shall be shared by all, all of us. In other words, your life and history isn't simply stuck in some kind of infinite feedback loop. And the longing that you have to actually see God, brothers and sisters, it's coming. 
Can you wait for that day? I can't wait for that day. A day that should shape our every day. What a day. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today and we praise you that you've promised us that you have not just left us to ourselves, that you are coming back, that you are going to restore all things, that you are going to bring perfect justice. And Father, part of that is that your people will have freedom from sin, freedom to enjoy and to see and to behold you forever. Father, we ask that you would stir in our hearts remembrance of this great hope. Use it to help us to fight sin, to be faithful, to grow in holiness, to declare the glories of the one who has delivered us out of darkness into your marvelous light. Lord, do this for the glory of your name we do pray. Amen.